and welcome to this podcast series from CityWire in association with Columbia Threadneedle Investments. My name is Amy Maxwell. I'm the managing editor of CityWire Engage, and I'll be your host for this series on responsible investing. For this first episode, I'll be joined by Pauline Grange, a global equities portfolio manager at Columbia Threadneedle, and Ben Palmer, who is head of responsible investment at UK wealth manager Brooks MacDonald. Today, we'll be discussing the rise of sustainability-related investment post-pandemic and how this wall of money is impacting the investment universe. Of course, we're speaking mere months ahead of the UK's hosting of the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference, or COP26. So what better time to delve deeper into areas such as the health of populations, social inequality, and the evolving nature of supply chains. In this episode, we'll be traversing the globe to uncover the economies and companies that are getting to grips with our changing world. So welcome, Pauline and Ben. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having us. So we've got COP26 coming up in just a couple of months, and they're going to be focusing heavily on those UN sustainability goals. There's 17 of them. Where would you say, Pauline, as a manager specifically in this space, your attention is being focused the most? I think it's, you know, firstly, maybe important for some of our listeners to take a quick step back um, uh, to just explain what the Sustainable Development Goals aim to achieve. Um, And as you said, you know, they were established by the United Nations in 2015 to address some of the biggest social and environmental challenges we currently face as a planet. Um, And really, they have a number, 169 underlying targets, which aim to direct public and private capital investment to just help make the world more equitable, greener, and healthier. But the problem with these sustainable development goals is that they were largely developed with public bodies in mind, and so not all of them are relevant from an investment perspective. And so what we've done at Columbia Threadneedle is we've developed eight sustainable themes, three of which are environmental, eight social, which really under the, underpin the investment for all our sustainable outcome strategies. And ultimately, we believe that investing for these sustainable themes does not only deliver positive impact for our investors, but it also encompasses some of the biggest investment themes of this decade. As you see, governments, investors and consumers alike shifting their focus towards driving positive change in our society. And what are those eight themes that you um, specifically focus on? Um, Well, within the eight themes, uh, we have our environmental themes, which have, you know, it's clean energy transition, it's sustainable resource management, it's regeneration and infrastructure. Okay. And and Ben, similarly, at Brooks MacDonald, you don't use the SDGs as an investment framework, more as a sort of communication tool. Do you want to tell me more about how the goals influence your work? Sure. It it was actually really interesting listening to Pauline there because I think there's a lot of synergies with how Columbia Threadneedle have thought about it and and we have as well. Um, But again, in line with what Columbia Threadneedle are doing, um, we have aligned the SDGs to our framework because where we do see the value of the SDGs is that they have the broad adoption of them. You know, as Pauline said, they were initially put out primarily as a policy framework for for global governments and international organisations, but 
the success of the SDGs really has been in, in the way that they have been adopted, both in the investment community, but now by a greater number of, of corporates as well, with regards to how do they communicate to their consumers, how they're helping to uh, contribute and address sustainability challenges. So we do see the value in them as a communication aid. But what we do, similar to Columbia Threadneedle, is show how our thematic framework is aligned to the SDGs. And, and the, the two areas which I think are probably uh, represent overweight positions through that lens, if you like, are absolutely to those cleaner energy transition areas um, and resource efficiency, uh, which is sort of the same side or different side of the same coin in many respects. And then also to that health and well-being theme, which we, we have highlighted in our framework as well. Um, if looking at areas which are in our framework probably underrepresented from an investment perspective, and this is partially because of the investment opportunity set, but I think might be growing areas of interest moving forwards, are, are to areas like education. Um, I know there's been um, a fair amount in the news recently about China's um, sort of stance on, on education technology firms, but I think there is a real opportunity in, in that area to to embrace technologies to increase uh, access to education um, across the world. You mentioned um, also about policy alignment. So these started off as sort of government initiatives. Do you think that the government back in has been helpful in, in sort of sh helping to steward capital into the areas that need most development? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think... Um, that if you, the way that we view it and sort of this increasing focus on, if we can use the big term of sustainability, um, it is definitely coming from, from two key areas, that top-down perspective in terms of how governments and international organizations are setting up the, the frameworks um, that companies and society operate within. And then also from that, that sort of groundswell of changing societal trends and, and consumer preferences. But concentrating on that first element, then I think absolutely there's been a noticeable shift in, in recent years. And certainly since the inception of the SDGs around the levels of commitment from governments in certain economies, but, but broadly speaking around the world, about how they've tried to set up taxation and regulatory frameworks uh, to be more supportive for enabling the transition to whether it's a low carbon economy or a more equitable society um, and, and trying to funnel both public and private capital into those areas. And Pauline, are you, would you concur that governments are doing enough to, to funnel capital into the areas which need it the most? Um, I think it can do more. <laughs> I think the, the problem right now, so what we've seen over the sort of last 18 months is definitely the rhetoric has, has accelerated around decarbonization of societies, also, I guess, more circularity. But the action and policies are lagging. Um, and so very little has gone into actual um, government policy stages. You see in the start of that in, say, Europe with the Fit for 55 package, which is coming, and hopefully ahead of COP26, you'll see more of it. But there's definitely, I'd say, a disconnect right now between action on the ground and what the rhetoric is. Um, and that's why it's also very important at a corporate level as well uh, as investors to make sure that, you know, that the rhetoric matches actual physical science-based action and targets and you're not seeing greenwashing as such. We've been talking there about government initiatives and whether or not the rhetoric 
matches matches kind of reality. And I suppose we've been thrown this huge curveball in the, in the form of the pandemic. So I imagine it's it's thwarted a lot of plans that governments may have had to 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 progress and to with this transition. So are you seeing that on the ground in the companies that you're investing with? No, I'd argue that it's probably more of the opposite, especially in say certain countries like like China. Um, you're now seeing it in the United States here in Europe, where a lot of you know the the sort of the fiscal stimulus packages that are have been put in place. They are trying to put a sort of more green recovery at the heart of that. So, for example, in Europe, the EU Green Deal has put it, been put at the heart of this fiscal recovery package. Um, and Biden, if his infrastructure bill, if and when the bill properly gets approved, you know, he wants to build back better. Um, it's still at the initial stages, but what you are starting to see when I speak to corporates is actually at the customer level, there's this increasing focus around because they're positioning themselves for not just the the infrastructure spend that is coming, but also the uh, they're conscious of the regulation coming around the environment as well. Um, so I take that as a positive <laughs> in terms of even if governments don't push through, customers are already starting to position. And you're seeing that in even at the consumer level, demand for, say, greener solutions um, is increasing. Um, and I think, you know, COVID at the end of the day has really highlighted the fragility of the planet, the fact that we can't just, you know, keep on encroaching on nature. It does have consequences. Um, and if we think COVID is a problem, climate change is is, is pretty big. <laughs> so we, we need to start tackling it. This is the big issue facing us over the next decade. I recognise that climate change is a huge issue, but just to stay on the pandemic for a little bit longer, I mean, it's also exacerbated sort of social inequality. So what are your hopes for this to be sort of rebalanced Taking a step back, you know, how COVID has really exacerbated social inequality. Um, it, it's been terrible both within countries, but also between countries. So you've seen this huge surge in social inequality within countries like the United States, but also between the richest and poorest nations. So poorer countries weren't able to afford these big fiscal stimulus programs that we've had and employment schemes that we've had for example, here in the United Kingdom, there's been differences in vaccination rates. So they haven't been able to reopen like the wealthier countries. But I think a big long-term concern and is, is really the differences in education during the crisis. So children in poorer nations didn't have access to computing devices and the internet to sustain their education like the wealthier countries. And I think this is a big concern for social inequality going forward. We've also had a big setback in gender diversity because of COVID. Women were twice, nearly twice as likely to lose their jobs during the pandemic. And those who kept their jobs were also more likely to take on the burden of childcare when the schools shut. So really, it's been a big problem. Um, and it was already growing, but COVID has exacerbated the problem. So what you're really starting to see now is that both governments and the private sector are starting to uh, tackle and try and address these issues going forward. And a lot of the green agenda that has been put in place at the heart of it is also about job creation. 
and trying to create more inclusive, equitable workforces. Um, and this is very important. And that's where I say that social and environmental are inextricably linked as well. Well, for our global sustainable outcome strategies, we're, you know, we've always been focused on trying to invest in those companies which are offering solutions that make the world, you know, the world's economies more inclusive and equitable. And at the end of the day, it, it just makes economic sense because a more equal society will have more sustainable, solid economic growth. For example, in the education space, you know, we have a US company which provides early year education centers, which is vital for child's development, but it's also vital to help create a more inclusive workforce by allowing work parents who are working to re-enter the workforce, and that supports economic growth. Yeah, I think it's um, it's been interesting to see how conversations have evolved over the last 18 months. And I think a lot of the trends and, and things that we were seeing beforehand have, have been accelerated by this process, both in terms of just general investment trends, but also sustainability trends as well. Um, so, you know, we, we've spent quite a bit of time discussing with fund managers how underlying company holdings have dealt with the the pandemic, you know, and, and the impacts of that on their workforce, as well as their consumer base and their supply chains as well. So how have they looked to manage those relationships and those stakeholders to try and, uh, you know, uh, ensure kind of fair outcomes? So I think, in and above the acceleration of the climate change agenda, I think uh, an area which we've probably spent more time as a proportion than we we had done previously is around those kind of internal management of, of stakeholders within businesses um, and, and how um, those portfolio managers and fund managers have 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 been engaging uh, with those companies on those challenges. I want to move on now to um, to technology. I mean, it's a bit of a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because it may be the fuel to our ever more digital economy, but it's it's not without its controversies. So I just want to explore two different perspectives on investing in technology. Because Pauline, I know um, there's many tech firms that don't make it into your portfolio. Yeah, I mean, firstly, to your point, I think that technology does play a vital role in supporting, you know, positive environmental and social outcomes. And so, in our strategy, we do have a number of great technology companies uh, which are offering some of the most exciting sustainable solutions. So, the examples of this include battery technology and semiconductors, which are helping to enable the clean mobility revolution. So, technology, I'd say technology and sustainability are definitely intertwined. But, and this is a big but, We've decided for our uh, our strategy that you know a lot of the big tech companies uh, like Apple, Facebook, Amazon, even Alphabet, yeah, you know, the controversies surrounding these companies are, are too big um, for us to ignore. So whether that be their anti-competitive accusations, data privacy concerns, um, sort of unethical taxation practices where you've seen, you know, in the US, for example, corporate tax rates dropping progressively over the last decade. And um, that we've, we've taken the position that we do not have to take on these responsible investment risks, even though they don't technically penalize these companies' ESG scores, because we can get access to these great tech themes 
with companies who have perhaps more ethical uh, practices. Okay. And and Ben, would you be taking a different stance to that or, or are you in agreement there? Bro- broadly speaking, in agreement um, in as much as we absolutely see uh, a lot of technology firms being at the forefront of how we can um, address several of these sustainability challenges. And Pauline's already referenced a number of the specific examples in terms of technology applications. And we tend to have three relatively uh, consistent sectoral overweights in our portfolios to technology, healthcare, and and industrials. I I do think that it's an interesting conversation with regards to the, um, I suppose, the overall sustainability debate around some of the big technology firms. and, and the way that we look at this is is always trying to be on balance where we think the sort of positive and negative impacts of these businesses are coming through, both from a products and services perspective, but also from an operational um, internal ESG management perspective. And I think a lot of the conversations around some of the potential ESG related risks around those and how we engage with our fund managers on that is, well, w- w- what are the conversation pieces here? What are the risks to this business? Um, how material are they? And how are the company addressing those, whether they've had either whether it's past indiscretions or current challenges, what is the management's team approach to that? Um, and, and our view, this is, is really where sort of stewardship and, and engagement and, and active uh, sort of share ownership really plays its part, that in, in reality, no business in the world is, is perfect. And therefore, we have to try and find opportunities which are providing um, more positive impacts for for the planet and society and looking to mitigate any negative impacts they have. So it sounds like stewardship is a, is a huge part of your due diligence process. So, I mean, Pauline, do you, do you want to go into a bit more detail about what the work that goes into your engagements? So on the engagement side, you know, if so we're global investors for our strategy. And I think it's important to highlight that Although financial metrics are very standardized and reporting is, is you know, very robust, when it comes to sustainable outcomes, we're still in the very early innings and there is a huge discrepancy across regions. So I'd say Europe is most advanced, but when you start moving into, say, certain emerging markets or parts of Asia um, or even the United States, there, you know, there's, there's very huge variations in the reporting. Um, this doesn't mean that the opportunities there around delivering positive impact for investors aren't as great. They just don't report as robustly around them. And so we don't want to miss those opportunities. And this is where engagement is vital. So it's really about clarifying with management the, the metrics and the underlying metrics, how those are aligned to the sustainable development goals and targets. Um, but also equally, it's very important to engage, to measure, to assess a company's intentionality. So how their business strategy um, aims to promote sustainability, both within their product innovation, their investment or access, social access to their products. And so this is where engagement plays a vital role, I'd say, particularly for a global investor. We will engage with management teams to a assess how the, the controversy arose and what ac- you know, actions and policy changes they are putting in place to ensure that doesn't happen again. Um, 
we will, you know, I guess the ultimate lever that we have for change as an active investment is that risk of disinvestment. Now, this summer saw the release of a pretty startling report from the IPCC, essentially saying that we are further behind with regards to climate change than previously thought. Um, um, ben and Pauline, do you think this will serve to galvanise the investment community? Um, what, do you, what, what, what do you hope um, this this kind of startling report will do. Firstly, obviously, it, the, the report has some, some, as you say, some pretty startling findings. Um, I think the hope partially comes from the fact that the report was signed off by all the UN members before its release. So, you know, there's kind of a, a agreement, supposedly at least, from all of the major world governments that this is the science-based evidence to show where we currently are, what we're currently doing and, and what we actually need to do in order to to stick to Paris Agreement targets, which is a lot more. Um, so, you know, the hope is that this will galvanize governments to put the frameworks in place. But ultimately, I, I think it's just a yet another reminder for companies in the investment community that a from a societal and, and a planetary perspective, these things need to be addressed. But there is a, a huge investment opportunity here in terms of identifying those companies which are going to not just enable, but speed up that transition. Um, and obviously, the hope is that governments absolutely put the frameworks to make that even more attractive from a corporate and a, an investment perspective. But even without that, um, you know, I, I do think it just, as I say, re-emphasise the opportunity set that's open to us. And Pauline, I imagine, you know, there, there's a huge funding gap. Are you, are you, you're finding plenty of opportunities to fill that gap? Yeah, I mean... You know, as Ben said, I think this is one of the biggest investment themes, whether it be the energy transition, but also circularity of resources. The IPCC report was, although it was shocking, I don't think it was particularly, you know, surprising for many of us. We know that we are falling short. And I think for many people, it's, it's hard to, you stand here right now and it's very hard to envisage the huge amount of rewiring we have to do for our economies to achieve these climate targets. Um, it's not just about moving towards green energy. It's about how we move. It's how we have to electrify our buildings. We have to change the construction industry. We have to change our agriculture practices. We have to change how our heavy industry works. It's a huge undertaking. Um, and for this, we really need to start accelerating um, that, that capital investment because it's, it's as big as the industrial revolution, which we saw at the turn of the century. This is mega. Um, and so, yeah, it, it does throw up some very compelling investment opportunities. And these are multi-decade opportunities. They're not short term. And that's what I love about investing in this and, and running this strategy is I don't care quarter to quarter and what results are doing. You know, I'm really focused on the long term and, and these are great investments. What a positive note to end on. Thank you, Pauline. Thank you, Ben, for your time today. Thanks, Amy. Great. Thanks very much. Thank you.